Well, you can have a seat. Uh, and good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith. Uh, I am our college teaching director here at our Anderson campus. So uh, normally I'm across the street on a Sunday preaching uh, with college kids over there. Uh, but I always love the opportunity to come over here and be with you guys. It, it brings me such joy um, to just kind of mix it up every once in a while. Uh, and you maybe know, I, I've been over here a few times, and so you might know uh, that I have a couple kids. Uh, I have a two-year-old daughter named Charlotte and a two-month-old son named Lawrence, uh, seen here in their Easter Sunday best uh, having found many, many eggs. Uh, well, Lawrence didn't. He was sleeping like a chump. But uh, the rest of us went and hunted, and it was, it was wonderful. Uh, but uh, Shaw and Lawrence, I, uh, just so you know, they uh, have severely disrupted my life. Um, basically, just sort of my day in, day out, it's all changed in light of having children in my house. Uh, that's something that just occurs to really anyone, whether we're in the stage with kids, uh, whether we, maybe we're married, maybe we're just students. Like I, I work with a lot of students and most of them aren't married with children. And so for a lot of them though, their lives have been disrupted by roommates, right? There are people in their lives that something they live with, uh, that they're not blood relatives. And so there's no like genetic disposition to love each other. Uh, and yet, they have to live in the same space. And I just remember walking into college and being just astounded uh, that as I'm living with these three or four other guys, uh, just everything was, my life was severely disrupted. Everything just smelled bad. Like that was just sort, that's sort of my memory of college. I don't really know what I did in college, but I know it smelled bad. Like just the whole time in my home. Uh, and eventually though, for some of us, right, we, we find a spouse, we find someone to, to marry and settle down with and and suddenly you have this new roommate. And I just remember the first kind of you know, months of marriage, I realized, oh my gosh, our home smells amazing. It smells good. Like that's number one perk of marriage. For sure, it smells so good. Like that's just immediate improvement in your life. And suddenly I now find myself in a new stage with these little people living in my home. And I go home and I smell mystery, I think. <laughs> Maybe it's not always bad. It's not always great. You never know. It's an adventure every day, and I love it. Uh, but we have people in our lives at every stage that will bring great disruption, that change the way that we live. And the reality is that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are here having placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your life has been disrupted by Jesus Christ. He is a person who brings incredible change to just the world at large, but especially his followers to his people. He has brought such incredible disruption. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and told them, look, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is futile and your faith is empty. In other words, he's saying not only is Jesus Christ disruptive, but the fact that he rose from the dead, the fact that he was buried, placed inside of a tomb, and yet on the third day was no longer in that tomb, because there are over 500 witnesses given to seeing this resurrected Christ, because of his resurrection, everything is changed. And he says, if that hadn't happened, if he hadn't been raised, this preaching, our, our, the things we're proclaiming, it's futile. The faith, the belief that you have, your way of life, it's empty. It's useless. It's pointless. If not 
for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything we are hinges on that event, on that person. Or it should. Right? When, we re- when we look at the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, what we see is, is the life of God who took on flesh to live among us. Right? The world at large looks at Jesus of Nazareth and they think, well, man, he maybe is a good teacher. You know, he kind of he changed up the way we keep our calendar. That's a little disruptive, but maybe he was a, a prophet or something along those lines. But when the word of God looks at Jesus of Nazareth, it calls him the Christ, literally the Christos, meaning the chosen one, meaning the Messiah who stepped out of heaven and onto earth to bring the dead to life. And when we look at his life, we don't see a, a God who, who is some sort of distant, unknowable entity. We see a God who took on flesh to walk among us so that he might know us intimately. What we see is the Christ. We see the chosen one live a life to perfection and die a death he did not deserve so that he would be able to choose us and invite us to join him in life beyond the grave. That's what we see in the gospel of Matthew. And that is something that should disrupt our lives. And so when we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we look at that empty tomb, It should change everything. Everything. And we see it change everything for Jesus' followers, even in the moment, in those first moments as they discover the empty tomb. In just the first 10 verses of Matthew 28, we will see the resurrection change everything in what they believed, in how they felt, and in why they lived. We see it then and we want to see it now. I pray that we see it now. When Jesus' followers were going to the tomb in in Matthew 28, there's basically the the setup. If you haven't been here the last few weeks, the the setup is Jesus of Nazareth has been murdered and buried. He was killed uh, because... Uh, He was claiming to be God. And so the Jewish leaders and authorities, they didn't like that. And so they brought false witnesses against him in front of the Roman uh, government. And they said, hey, this guy's trying to overthrow Caesar. He deserves to die. And so they murder him. They crucify him on a cross. They they take him down. They put him in a tomb. They seal the tomb uh, because they don't want his followers getting in there and messing with the body. And so in this moment, in Matthew 28, he's been in the tomb and it's the third day. It's the day after the Sabbath at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. If we read other kind of corresponding accounts from the other gospels, we know that there was another woman as well. There were three women that were going to look at the tomb and they weren't going there to be like, oh yeah, I think Jesus is going to be uh, up today. Like they weren't going with like a banner of like, welcome back. You know, they were going with spices and oils. They were going to anoint his corpse. They were fully expecting Jesus of Nazareth to be dead and in that tomb. They didn't know it was going to be sealed up, but they fully expected his body to be inside. And yet suddenly there was a severe earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. He was descending from heaven and he came and he rolled away the stone and he sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so shaken, they became like dead men because they were so afraid of this angelic figure. And the angel then said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. Here's the thing. He is not here for he's been raised. Just as he said, Come. See the place where he was 
lying, where he had been lying and yet it no longer is. Immediately, everything changes. For these women to go and expect to see a corpse and yet find an empty tomb, man, it, it, it's going to change everything that they believe. Because up until this point, there were other messianic movements, right? There's, that's the thing. Is you, I was a history major at AM. You will look, and there are so many messianic movements, especially in this time period, around the time of Christ, where, where these dudes would rise up. They'd be like, hey, I'm, I'm God, or I'm the messenger of God, or I'm kind of God. This other guy's God, but he can't talk, so I'm going to talk for him. And, and they would rise up, and they would try to gather followings of people and be like, hey, I'm going to lead you out of bondage. I'm going to lead you out of captivity. It happened in just even the Jewish world time and time again. People were like, oh, yeah, this is it. We're going to set up a new kingdom. Don't worry about it. And time and time again, these people died. It happens to people from time to time. Uh, And they would die. And as they died, so did their movements. As soon as that Messiah figure was done, the followers would generally disband. There's no longer, you know, there's no more followers of these dudes that that rose up and claimed to be God. And and it's something that we see even referenced in Scripture. In Acts 5, uh, the Roman government's kind of debating about what to do about Christians. They're like, what's going on? Like, there are all these Christian people. They talk a lot. What's going on? Like, what do we do with them? And so a Pharisee at the time, a guy named Gamaliel, he stands up in front of him. He says, okay, here's the deal. He's not a believer, but he's kind of speaking about the issue. He says, if we've seen this before, right? He said, we, we've seen this. He gives a couple examples. He says, we saw this one guy, he had like 400 followers. Pretty good, right? And this other guy, not as many followers. Eh. And he says, but well, here's the thing. They die and it just kind of goes away. The problem solves itself. And so he tells them literally in Acts 5, he says, If this is of men, you don't have to do anything. It'll take care of itself. It'll just sort of, it'll peter out, right? It's like, I don't know, a kid on a sugar high. You just, you let them run their course. Eventually they'll just collapse, right? That's just, that's what you let them do. It says, but if this is of God, and again, he's not a believer, but just logically he says, if this is of the Lord, it says you can't do anything. You can't do anything. He says, you shouldn't want to, right? You don't want to try to oppose, stand in the way of the God of the universe. So, so if what these Christians are saying, if it's just kind of a made up mumbo jumbo, don't worry about it. It's going to go away on its own. He says, but if it's actually truth, if this Jesus of Nazareth really is Jesus the Christ, if he's really been raised, if he's really God, it's like, I, you don't want to get in the way of that. You can't. And sure enough, Despite all these early attempts to just destroy Christianity, to, to kind of push out Christianity, it exploded, right? It, it didn't, crum- not only did it not crumble, but it just expanded. It, it moved across the world, across the empire at unprecedented rates. Within a, hundred, a few hundred years, there are literally tens of thousands and millions of people that have heard of the name Jesus of Nazareth. It's an incredible movement. Why? Because it's the first and only messianic movement where the Messiah didn't stay dead. So suddenly his followers, I mean, they see this and they're like, wow, this is different. 
this is different. And it's unfortunate that they didn't realize that until the angel had to show them. Uh, because like he says, he says, hey, he's been raised just as he said. The reality is that over Jesus' ministry, he told them time and time and time again, hey, just so you guys know, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. But listen, I'm going to get up again. All right? He said that over and over again, every single time. His followers were like, oh, yeah, okay, Jesus. Whatever. This guy is nuts. Right? But sure enough, he would tell them over and over again, John 10, he says, this is why the Father loves you. Why? Because I lay down my life so that I might take it back again. No one's going to take it away from me. I'm going to lay it down on my own free will. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up. He says, look, I'm going to lay down my life. People are going to, mur- I'm going to die. But that's all within my control. It's within my plan. He, he says this so many times. And yet no one believed him. The three women going to his tomb, again, they weren't there to welcome him. There wasn't just like that one disciple. There wasn't Danny, the disciple, who had believed the whole time, like, I think Jesus will rise. And then he's proven right at the end. No one. There is no one who believes him from his closest followers. And it's something that can frustrate us, right? That's something that we see and we're like, that's, that's just, it's frustrating, But what's beautiful is that not only is it something that we can relate to, right? How many times have I been told by God, hey, you should walk this path or trust these things or know that these decisions are going to lead you to this destination? How many times do I know what the Lord says and yet I just refuse to believe it until I get kind of down the road and I find myself in a rough spot and I'm like, how'd I get here? No one told me. And then I realize, oh, wait, no, God, it's like in the Bible. We relate to the disciples in this manner. It also authenticates the message. If people are just kind of making up the historical account, this is just sort of a legend or fiction. You don't implicate yourself, right? You're not going to have all these failures in scripture if it's just legends arising out of people's minds. Anytime you get to write your own history, you don't write yourself in a negative light. Uh, just a few weeks ago, my daughter and son, they were playing together. They're, we're so thankful that they kind of get along at this stage. Uh, where basically Lawrence will just sort of lay around and Shaw will like hug him and kiss him and she loves little baby Lawrence. And so uh, I was watching their playing in the living room. I step away for like 30 seconds because that's all it ever takes is 30 seconds before I then hear Aah! just this, this yell. And it was from Lawrence and, and he's really chill. Like he'll cry sometimes, but this wasn't even a cry. Like this was like a, this was like a, a man's yell. Like, Oh, like I never heard it. And so I rushed back into the room and sure enough, he's still laying on the floor. He's kind of like, Aah! and I look and I see Charlotte and she's just sort of <laughs> standing there. Oh, oh. And so I asked her like, Hey, Charlotte, like what? What happened? What, what happened to Lawrence? She said, oh, he's sad. He's sad. <laughs> Baby, he cry? Sad? Hmm. And so I said, well, Charlotte, like, did you hurt him? Like, were you in, like, did you step on him? Or No, no, no hurt. No hurt. Lawrence? No. I'm offended you'd ask. No, no. I said, well, did you hug him? Like with a little too much love, you know, like, did you, did you maybe squish him? Did you hug him? She's like, meh, meh, yeah, hug. Said like a hard hug. Who's to say? That's basically (laughs) where we landed. 
show me your evidence and maybe I'll own up. And she knows, even as a two-year-old, she has this, in, this, this part of her that knows, hey, if I'm writing my own, own version of history, I'm not implicating myself. You kidding me? You got nothing. You got nothing on me, dad. Nothing. And so suddenly I realized, goodness, like a two-year-old just instinctively does this. If we were looking at scripture and it was just nothing but success story after success story, that would give us reason to doubt, reasons to pause. And yet when we look in scripture, we see time and time again, these relatable men and women who, who have definitely high points and wonderful moments and, and they make decisions where they live by faith that's inspiring and, and serves as an example for us. But I'll tell you this, they are never the end all be all hero of our scriptures. When we look through scripture, we never see the ultimate hero of any story being a man or a woman. The hero of our scripture, the hero of every story is always God. Always. Every time. And so when I'm reading scripture, when I'm reading these accounts, when I'm looking at these disciples who just miss it, I'm not frustrated. I'm encouraged. Because I say, yeah, you know what? I'm going to miss it. (laughs) I'm definitely going to miss it. And yet God still loves me. And yet Christ still died for me. And as we're going to see, Jesus doesn't hold it against them. Not in the least. So as we read this account, when we see the change that occurs, when we see the, 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 the newness of what they're experiencing in who Jesus claimed to be, when he, was, when he was validating all of his claims, man, their belief, it was rocked. And we have to ask ourselves, man, what do we believe? What do you believe about Jesus of Nazareth? Do you believe he's the son of God? Do you believe that he died and yet rose again? Do you believe that you can just trust in who he is and what he said and and in doing so receive forgiveness for the sins and the failures in your life? That you can have eternal, you can have life beyond this world. Do you believe that? that's not a belief. It's not a trust that your parents can just give you or your spouse can just give you. It's something you have to own. So do you? Does this, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ disrupt what you believe? Does it disrupt how you feel? Because when we look at his followers immediately after they realize this, as the angels talking to them, he says, Hey, I, I need you to go quickly. I need you to tell his other disciples, tell them that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he's going ahead of you into Galilee. You'll see him there. Listen, I've told you, go, right? So he's telling these women, you need to go and tell, pass along this message. And so the women, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly what we see is a change, not only in how they understand Jesus and, and who they understand him to be. Suddenly we see a change in their hearts. We see a change in, in how they feel. They're, they're filled with fear, a healthy fear. That's good. They saw an earthquake and an angel. And that's a lot, of, that's a lot to take in. And they're also filled with joy. And I'll tell you, there was no joy as you're going to anoint a a corpse. There's no joy in that. And yet suddenly they've been told this news. They were confronted with this reality and they're filled with a hope that gives them a joy 
that just sweeps away the confusion, sweeps away the frustration because they know they have a God waiting for them. They have a Jesus who really is the Lord, a Jesus who's told them time and again that he loves them and he's alive. Can you sing the alphabet, Julie? Yes, yes I could. Let's hear you sing the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, T, C, G, M, S. You're not singing the alphabet. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S. Cookie Monster is in the letter of the alphabet. It goes Q, R, S, T, U, V. You're just teasing me. W, X, Y, and Z. Now I know my ABCs. Next time, Cookie Monster can do it with you. I'm leaving. I love you. I love you too. Thanks. Suddenly the confusion and fear swept away. Why? Because she loves Kermit. She loves him. As do we all. Right? But we see this moment. We, we can see, I mean, confusion and fear and frustration. If, if it's in light of a greater hope, if it's in light of a greater statement, a greater truth, I mean, those things, they can fade away. I have these kids, two kids that, that I, I love. And so, I mean, there's confusion and there's frustration and there's anxiety. I want to make sure that they're like eating properly and they have good digestive movements and I want to make sure that they're, you know, like hearing good things and saying good words and learning proper manners. And, and, you know, there's a lot of confusion and frustration and anxiety in the midst of that. But, but the reality is every once in a while, I just have moments of realizing, gosh, I love you so much. And in light of that love, I mean, it's just, it's something that surpasses understanding and knowledge and fear and frustration. Jesus' disciples were going to a tomb expecting to see a dead body. And they were going to go back to lives that they were expecting to be filled with, with fleeing and, and, and hiding and suffering and probably death. And yet all of a sudden, because that body was not there, because that tomb was empty, because Jesus was actually resurrected, they're filled with hope. Now, is there still room for confusion and fear and frustration and anxiety and disappointment? Absolutely. Absolutely. But is there a hope that we have beyond that? Man, you know it. That's why Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He says, look, I don't want you to be uninformed. Brothers and sisters, in other words, fellow believers, about those who are asleep, about believers who have died. He uses temporary terminology. He says it's like they've just fallen asleep. Because one day they're going to wake up. Says, I don't want you to be uninformed about them because I don't want you to grieve like the rest of the world that has no hope. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. He says, we have a hope that transcends all of this stuff. There's fear and frustration and anxiety and destruction and death and disease. Sure. And those things aren't going to be easy. And you're not going to be immune from them. 
Jesus never promised his followers that they were going to have easy lives. In fact, he promises that it's going to be harder, that the world's going to reject them, that they're going to face suffering, that they're going to have to bear crosses, that they're going to have to suffer and, and probably die for his sake. That's what he promised. That's the life he promised here on this earth. But what's beautiful is that Jesus didn't stop there. He says, yeah, that's going to be your life in this existence. He says, but you know what? There's a new life. There's a better life. There's one that's coming when all of this is done away with. That's what Paul is talking about. Sorry, what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because by his great mercy, he gave us a new birth into a living hope. A hope that we can take with us. A hope that carries us forward through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a living and active hope. In what? He says, into an inheritance imperishable undefiled, unfading. It's an inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, you are living lives right now that are going to be full of turmoil. Absolutely. He says, but you are looking forward to a new life that has this guaranteed inheritance that's been secured and protected for you. How? Through the faith that you've placed in Jesus Christ. He says, that's what you have. So do we still get bombarded with the things of the world? Is there still room for doubt and frustration and fear and anxiety and pain and suffering? Absolutely. I'm still going to get frustrated when my friends deal with financial issues or infertility issues or with marriage issues. I'm going to still get frustrated when I see people suffering and when I see people dying and when I see people walking through life making horrific decisions. That's going to bother me and it should bother all of us. We mourn with those who mourn and we weep with those who weep. But we don't do so as people who have no hope. We recognize that there is a God who's always at work, who's going to use that trial and tribulation to strengthen and preserve our endurance. We have a God who's at work to use these things for his own glory. Do we always get to see exactly how that plays out when we want to see it, when we want to see it play out? No, no. And that can drive us crazy. But rather than stand and ask why in defiance. God's telling us, trust me because I love you. And he's proven that love in this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which secured for us that salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. So how do we feel? Church, how do we feel? Are we secure and confident and content in the knowledge that we have a life everlasting beyond this broken world? Are we putting our hope in the heavenly things, as Paul describes it, in things that will not rush, rust or perish? Or do we find ourselves putting our faith and our trust and our hope in the things of this world, of getting that promotion, of lining up that relationship, of having kids that act that way or having a salary that pays this much? Are we putting our hope in these things that will ultimately fail us, that will ultimately fade away? God says, I I have a better hope for you. I have a better promise. Just trust me. 
And with that trust, with that faith, I'm going to protect you. And, and I have something reserved for you beyond this, beyond this brokenness. And he says, and while you wait that, await that day, I have a mission. Right? The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't just change what we believe. It doesn't just change how we feel, but it should change why we live. It should change the motivation behind every step we take. As soon as Jesus' followers, as soon as those women heard the news and realized that Jesus was risen, they're running to tell the disciples. But in the midst of that movement, in the midst of them trying to go and tell the other disciples, Jesus shows up. Awesome. And he says, greetings. Literally, kairate. Meaning, literally, it's just like the standard, like what you'd put at the top of your email or camel mail or whatever they had back then. Right? This is what I would write at the beginning of a letter. Kairate, what, what's up? Which is awesome because uh, obviously he's up and that's the big deal, right? Like that's, that's the big, that's what's so different. And so suddenly <laughs> they come to him and they're like, oh my gosh. And they hold on to his feet and they worship him. And they're like, oh yeah, what's it? Oh, and then Jesus in the midst of all this, right? He says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go, tell my brothers, go to Galilee, right? Tell the followers. He's repeating the command given by the angels. He says, hey, go tell everyone to go to Galilee. Why? Because they'll see me there. In other words, you have more coming, right? There's, there's a new command. I'm, I'm going to give you kind of your next orders in Galilee. Jesus is showing up in the midst of this crazy disruptive moment and he's telling them, hey, I'm going to use this passion. I'm, I've got a plan for you. I've got a plan for my people. Why? Because he knows that, that their joy and their hope and their passion, this thing that's being ignited in them, this excitement and this great joy that's, that's combined with this fear and it's like, ah, he knows that it needs a direction, right? He knows that they need a direction and a purpose for that energy. He knows that consistent passion, it requires a clear purpose. Such as, I don't know, slam your sister's arm into the table. Two. Relax. Go. <laughs> fought battle. It didn't end in defeat this time, but man, that's, that's passion, right? I wish I approached every challenge in life with that level of fervor. Uh, there was a passion that was ignited and maintained what? By a purpose, by a clear purpose. Hey, I need to slam this, my sister's arm into the table. I need to defeat her in mortal combat, mortal arm wrestling combat. Uh, and as soon as that purpose is gone, right, as soon as it is failed to be accomplished, what, the passion goes away. Suddenly she looks like a normal child, not like an ancient warrior from times gone by. And that's the reality of our existence. So many times we find ourselves passionate about a particular pursuit, about a particular purpose, and, and as soon as we check that box, the passion just sort of goes away. 
We, we find ourselves excited about, man, if I just need to get that job or I need to line up that promotion or I need to kind of arrange these things and move my career in this direction. And, and as soon as we send all the emails and make all the connections and have the meetings and suddenly we achieve it, what happens? Our passion dissipates and we find ourselves six months later bored again. Why? Because the, pa- the purpose has been accomplished. So the passion goes away. We've found ourselves maybe really passionate about the purpose of finding a spouse. Right? I work with college students. I'll tell you, so many of them are passionate about the purpose of finding a spouse. There is so much passion across the street right now. I can't even, you, I, you won't even make sense. Like you won't even understand. Why? Because they have this clear purpose. Like I got to find this person and they're going to be here. They're going to be in maybe this class. I don't know. Not this one, the next one. And they're just, man, they're fired up and they're moving in these directions. They're having those conversations. They're sending those emails and Snapchats and all that stuff. And eventually the, just statistically, a lot of them are going to find that person and they're actually going to get that ring by spring and they're going to get married. And they're going to have that spouse. And yet so many of them are going to walk into the situation that I've seen my friends walk into where you get married. And then about five years later, you're looking at the person and you're like, well, what are we doing? And you're tired of that person. And there's not a lot of passion. Why? Because your purpose was just to get married. The box has been checked and the passion's gone. We need better purposes. We need higher purposes. We need lasting purposes. Or else we're doomed to fall into this roller coaster nightmare of rising and falling passion and excitement and motivation. That's why God looks at his people and he tells them, hey, let me give you a purpose. Love me and love everyone around you. So there's a purpose. In fact, next week, you guys are going to look further into Matthew 28, where Jesus is going to call all of his disciples, all his followers together on this mountain in Galilee. And he's going to say, hey, here's your purpose. Go to every person everywhere and tell every single one of them what I've told you. Invite every single one of them to follow me just as you've been following me. Make disciples. That's your purpose. That's your mission. And that's a great commission that's extended not only from that group gathered on a mountainside, but it's extended all the way to us today, here, now. Why? Because there are still people that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why you had a bunch of people standing up here on stage and standing up in our midst. They're moving to places to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Because that purpose continues. It's not been checked off. So the passion within us should be ignited and it should be maintained because God has said, this is what I have for you. This is what you can be involved in. You can be a part of this eternal movement. You can have an impact on the eternal state of the souls of people around you. God doesn't have to use us. He doesn't need us. And yet he offers an opportunity to be a part of his mission. And that is something that continues to just blow my mind. That he would use us as broken, messed up, faulty people in his eternal perfect purpose. Gosh, praise the Lord 
that he has given us something so incredible. A thing that Paul describes as this new life. He says, we've been buried with Jesus Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may live a new life. He says, we're not just raised to sit around and reflect on what God accomplished. Jesus doesn't just want people raised up so that they'll be his fans. He wants us to follow him. He doesn't want us just to be impressed with what he accomplished. He wants us to be engaged with what he laid out. He doesn't want us to just sort of sit and reflect on the things that he taught. He wants us up. He wants us moving. He wants us to be a part of and, and respond to the, the commands that he's given. Not out of a sense of obligation, like I got to do these things to earn God's favor or his love, but it's out of a sense of gratitude that Jesus would live the life that I could not live and die the death that I deserved so that I might know that there is a God who loves me, who has secured a hope for me beyond any understanding that this world can offer. So is that why we're living? Is that why we live? Or do we find ourselves following after other purposes and missions and Do we set up other kind of mile markers and boxes to be checked off with our career, with our family, or with our relationships? Whose will are we seeking to accomplish here on this earth? Whose plan are we following? Whose purpose are we trying to fulfill? Jesus says, I have something better than anything this world can offer. It's bigger. It lasts longer. It's more encompassing. It's more inclusive. You can all be a part of it because ultimately it's honestly the work of God. It's the work of the spirit through us. So so join me. Join me in this new life beyond the grave. Join me in my resurrection. Be my hands and my feet to take the news of what I've done to the ends of the earth. Is that why we're living? Let's go before the Lord. And ask him for clarity as we think about this. God, we thank you that you have given us, Lord, the the opportunity to be involved in your mission and in your purpose. Lord, we thank you that you've shown us, God, you've proven to us that Jesus of Nazareth truly was and is and always will be Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the Chosen One that his death paid for our sin, that his resurrection proved your power over that sin, over the death, over the the consequences that we brought upon ourselves. God, you paid the penalty that we earned for ourselves. Lord, you've secured for us that inheritance beyond this world. And yet, Lord, we confess that we falter in our belief. Lord, we falter in how we feel towards you. Lord, we falter in why we get ourselves up and move in every day. If you would just take a moment and confess to God, Lord, this is, I'm struggling to believe this thing or God, I'm, I'm struggling to really feel grateful or hopeful. God, I'm just, I'm frustrated or I'm anxious. God, I'm just angry at the way things are turning out right now. Or maybe just be honest and say, God, I, I'm pursuing these other purposes and these other missions. But then ask the Lord, God, send your spirit. God, let the Holy Spirit empower me to to change. God, to move differently. Lord, let your spirit be strong in my weakness. Let me rejoice in my struggles because I know that you're going to fill the gaps that I create. 
Just be honest with the Lord. Talk with him. Share those things with him right now. Well, God, we thank you for this new day. Lord, this new opportunity to know you and to make you known. God, I just pray that we would uh, seize the opportunity. That, Lord, that your word would be living and active in our hearts. Lord, even as we walk into the unknown of this week, God, let us trust in who you are and what you've said and what you've done. So we pray all these things in your will. Amen. All right, well, we love you guys. and We'll see you in a week.